Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. Good day to everyone and welcome to this week's Smart Karma webinar. This is your host Pranav Rao from Smart Karma's research team. I'm pleased to introduce Gautam Jain, who will be go, going over his process to identify emerging markets effects and rates ideas today. Gautam has over 20 years of experience covering global emerging fixed income markets, both as, uh, as a strategist and a portfolio manager. He has worked at both buy-side and sell-side firms, including the Rohitan Group, Barclays Capital, and Millennium Partners. He has helped manage emerging markets, local currency, and hard currency debt funds. He holds a PhD in operations research from Columbia University and is a CFA charter holder. Over to you, Gautam. Thank you, uh, Pranav. Um, hello, everyone. Um, as Pranav mentioned, I have uh, covered emerging markets fixed income uh, for, for around 25 years, uh, both as a strategist and a portfolio manager. Uh, currently, as an insight provider at Smart Karma, I write on emerging market currencies and rates. Uh, specifically, I produce uh, several periodic uh, publications. Uh, first, I publish a daily effects and rates note uh, to go along with uh, the monitors that I've created to identify dislocations in these markets. Second, I produce a weekly trade note uh, that I publish every Monday. Uh, finally, I produce a monthly compilation of trade ideas essentially just updating the trades that I've recommended with their current performances. So what I want to do today is to walk you through the process I use to produce my, uh, the, my weekly uh, trade ideas. So as a first step, uh, what, I, what I do is use the monitors that I mentioned before to identify any dislocation in either of the two markets that I track. Uh, so what I mean by that is I look at the price history of an asset, whether it's a currency or rate, uh, to judge how it's performed relative to its own uh, price history. Uh, so uh, the, next, uh, the next step is to identify the outliers, uh, which I do by computing z-scores for each of them. So the idea is anything that has deviated significantly from its uh, from its mean over the past two or three years will be, will be highlighted as an outlier. Now that I have uh, looked at outliers relative to their own history, what I do next is find the outliers when I compare an asset to other emerging market assets. For example, if I'm looking at a currency, I compare it with currencies across emerging markets. Same thing with rates. When I'm looking at the specific rate, I compare it with others. And to do that, it is important to adjust it by their respective betas. And by that, what I mean is, essentially I compute the betas of each of the asset with respect to, a, to an aggregate EM index. So if I'm looking at currencies, I create an EM currency index uh, and I compute the beta of each of the currencies with respect to that index. So if a currency has a beta of two, uh, essentially the idea is if uh, you know, EM currencies on aggregate move by a percent, 
it should move by 2%, essentially based on its beta. But if it moves more or less, that means it's, it's uh, outperforming or underperforming. And that's essentially how I identify an outlier. So essentially what I do is, if you imagine a, a chart like this, which plots spot returns against beta, I am picking out those that are, are, are standing out by once again computing the z-scores based on this chart. So the next step, what I do is now that I have uh, z-scores based on the two methodologies, I describe one with respect to their own history and second with respect to other countries uh, in the space. Then uh, what I do is I, I, I compute the average of the z-scores and then rank uh, all the currencies or rates uh, based on this z-score. So the idea is I'll be able to identify which ones are expensive and which ones are cheap based on this approach. However, just being rich or cheap may not be enough. Uh, so what I do is I compute expected returns using these z-scores and assuming the currency or rate mean reverse. And I also assume that the mean reversion happens over a three month horizon. Uh, and the idea is uh, that way I include the carry as well in the return to calculate the total return. So it's a three month carry that gives me the total return. And once I get these returns, once again, I rank the currencies and rates to identify which ones are, are, have high positive expected returns and those that have high negative returns. So once again, I'm able to rank uh, the currencies and rates against each other to essentially identify the outliers. Next, what I do is I pair currencies and rates against each other. Uh, and this is important. The reason I do that is because for currencies, um, emerging markets currencies, when you look at them, they, the main driver is the US dollar. So for the significant portion of their move, uh, essentially come from the dollar. For currencies. Similarly, for uh, rates, a significant driver is U.S. rates. So just by looking at how U.S. rates are performed, a significant portion of the moving EM rates can be defined by that. So in order to isolate the idiosyncratic component of each currency or rate, it is better to look at crosses. That way you take out this common element, which is the dollar in the case of currencies or U.S. rates in the case of uh, rates. So, and essentially the idea is once I get these crosses, I uh, look at the returns that I showed before to find the returns or the expected returns uh, over a three month horizon for each of the pairs. And then I try to pick the pairs with the highest returns. Uh, so for example, in this, in this table, I have isolated all the Asian currencies. And when I look at this, I pick out, let's say Thai baht against Singapore dollar, and Indonesian rupiah against Singapore dollar is two attractive pairs from this, from this matrix. Now, once I have picked out the dislocations, which was the first step, first sort of major step of my process, what I want to do next is to narrow down the pairs that have a strong macro case, underlying macro case that makes it an attractive trait to put on. Uh, so essentially the macro case you know, in order to develop a, a macro view, I would look at the monetary policy in the country, the fiscal policy, the debt dynamics, external balances, political developments, if there are elections in the country that could have a factor. Also technical factors are important. 
So I look at us as, uh, as a wide array of factors that can be influencing an asset in a country. As an example, let's say uh, in my previous method, when I was looking at dislocations, let's say the Turkish Lira pops out as an, as an attractive currency or a cheap currency, but then I overlay the fact that the president uh, had fired the central bank governor and replaced with somebody who is less likely to follow an orthodox policy framework. So when I overlay that, then essentially I can conclude that uh, the currency is cheap, but potentially it could get cheaper, or at the very least it's going to be very volatile until we get some sort of a sense of where the policy is going. So I would probably not put that on or recommend that as a trade. On the other hand, if there's a currency that I find that looks cheap, and in that country, if I, if I know that the central bank will likely tighten monetary policy more than what's priced in the curve, then potentially the currency is very attractive. Uh, so I, I would then proceed and then look at that as a potential the long side of the pair. So to look at the next step, uh, which is uh, uh, essentially once I've identified a pair, uh, this is to me one of the most important and possibly underestimated step. Essentially it is to find the right weightings of the two legs of a cross trade. And this is a little bit of, of size, a little bit of art in the sense that what I try to do is find uh, first pairs that have reasonable correlations uh, with each other. Otherwise, even though you may be putting on a pair or a cross trade, uh, each leg of the trade can behave on its own and, and therefore not really hedge against each other and not hedge against the main, main risk that you were hedging against, which was the dollar in the case of currency, or US rates in the case of any rate trade. Uh, so the idea is to find uh, the weighting of the legs. So for example, if I'm looking at currencies, what I want to find is for 1 million long position in a currency, what should I, uh, how much of the short currency should I put on? So it's, that's the weighting I want to look at. Similarly for rates, if I have 1000 DB1 on the long side, what is the sizing of the short side? Essentially, I do this by effectively finding the ways that minimize the risk. The risk itself can be um, defined in terms of either beta, of volatility, of R, any approach that you use essentially to find the weight that historically had the least risk for the pair. Now, this is kind of the final step in my process. Uh, essentially, once I have identified the pairs, I have uh, I, a pair, I have identified uh, the expected returns uh, on a three month horizon under various scenarios for the pair, because I have the weightings for the pair, I can look historically and assume a mean reversion or if levels were to go back to where they were a month ago or a certain uh, period, so let's say six months ago, I can look at the uh, best point over the past X number of years or the worst point to get a sense of what the risk return is like in the trade. Uh, I can also compute the z-score of the pair to see if it's high enough, uh, making the pair attractive as a trade. Uh, I can also look at VARs of each leg and the VAR of the pair to make sure uh, that the pair itself does not has, has 
rest know not much more than one leg of the trade. Finally, I can compute the expected return, assuming mean reversion were to happen. And then that's, that's kind of what I put out in a table. So if you look at my trade notes, which as I said earlier, I put out weekly. So when I have a trade, you will see this table at the, at the end of each of my notes. Essentially, this gives you the sizing to the, to, that go along with that particular trade. So this was sort of my process. Um, there are a few trades that I can, I have currently on. Uh, for example, in the case of currencies, I have um, uh, since, since February, I've recommended five pairs. Uh, the italicized pairs are the ones that have already recommended closing. Uh, the others are still live and still on. Um, in rates, I have recommended so far seven pairs. Uh, one of them is closed or recommended to be closed. The others are still still open. Uh, so this is sort of my process and the current trades that I have on. Uh, with that, I'll stop. Um, pass it on back to Pranav. Thanks very much, Gautam, for that presentation. Um, a couple of questions here. Um, you've, written, you've recently written about how you've noticed EM currencies being very highly inversely correlated with the dollar this year. What do you think is probably a reason or a few reasons for that? Sure. Yes, I, I, that is correct. Uh, uh, essentially, as I was saying earlier, the main driver for EM currencies historically is the dollar. So EM currencies tend to be quite highly correlated with the dollar or negatively correlated with the dollar essentially. So when dollar weakens, you'll typically see currencies, EM currencies um, uh, strengthen and vice versa, except in the scenario where you're getting a massive uh, risk aversion sell-off. In that, in that scenario, you'll see uh, the dollar strengthen and EM currencies weaken. Uh, so essentially, if you think of a dollar smile, that's the left side of the dollar smile. Uh, but, but essentially the two are very highly correlated. Uh, and the average correlation, if you look at trolling treatment correlation is around, it's a little over 60%. Uh, this year, uh, as you were asking, the correlation has been even higher. Early in the year, the correlation was close to 80% uh, and it has averaged something like 70% uh, year to date. Uh, the reason I, I believe that they are uh, so correlated this year is because the U.S. rates or the 10-year rates essentially is the biggest driver of all markets, I would say. So in effect, uh, you know, when U.S. Uh, yields were rising, um, as the reflationary scenario in the U.S. was being priced in, you had uh, U.S. 10-year rate go from something like 90 basis points at the end of last year to as high as 175 at the end of March. Uh, so that was a big 85 basis point move. As that happened, the dollar, which had been weakening last year, strengthened. And as that strengthened, emerging market currencies were weakening. And uh, you know, since, since the start of this month, uh, essentially the treasuries have cooled off. The reflationary scenario or what we know of as of now seems to be priced in. And as they cooled off and sort of came off from the peak, something like 20 basis points off the peak. That's when the dollar sort of started weakening again and emerging markets currencies started strengthening. So because everything was being driven by that one common driver, I think the correlation has been higher than normal. Understood. Thank you, Gautam. Uh, I've got a question from 
the attendees, um, similar to what I was going to ask, uh, what is your highest conviction trade idea at the moment? Sure. So two trades that I've put on uh, recently, which I like quite a bit. One is Russian ruble against the South African rand. Uh, so the ruble was pricing in um, a lot of risk, mostly political risk or geopolitical risk, uh, I would say, uh, because uh, Russia was amassing its troops along the border with Ukraine. Uh, and at the same time, US imposed uh, sanctions on Russia or was expected to impose sanctions on Russia and that was getting priced in the currency. Once those sanctions were imposed, essentially that's when I put the trade on because to me, now the main risk was behind. And at that point, the only way it would get worse is if in fact, uh, there was a, an, a, another war or encroachment in Ukraine, which I did not think was very likely. To me, the more likely scenario was once the sanctions were imposed, and unless the uh, sanctions are very punitive, which I did not think they were, that, that would sort of set up a stage for an opening between the US and Russia, potentially setting up a meeting, which is kind of the rumblings that we're hearing now. Uh, but effectively what happened was almost immediately day after or two days after I put the trade on, the ruble leg, as you can see here, worked quite well, the ruble rallied. South African rand has sold off, but very low. It remains quite expensive, uh, in my view. It has it is, has been essentially the best performing currency uh, this year, uh, partly because the, the, the central bank or the SARB in, in South Africa turned more hawkish. I, I do think that there will be hiking rates, but not, not imminently. So my, my take is there is room for the rand to underperform because it's outperformed so much. So that's the one pair I like. It's obviously worked already since I put it on, but given how, how mispriced I believe the ruble is, I think there is potentially more to go here. Uh, the second one I would highlight is the Indonesian rupiah against Singapore dollar. This one I put on just before the meeting, MAS meeting, um, the semi-annual meeting earlier this month. Uh, so far, this has actually gone the other way. It has not worked yet. I still think it should, should work. I still uh, like the trade. Uh, essentially, in the case of Rupia, my uh, what it seems to be pricing in, the potential that the central bank mandate may be modified, and that concern is getting priced in because one of the risks that if that were to happen would be you'd get outflows from the bond market and that would hit the currency. Precisely because of that risk, I don't expect them to go ahead with that because the stability of the bond market and currency is pretty important uh, for the central bank and essentially for the country. So I don't think that should happen. In the case of Singapore, uh, to some extent, the market was afraid of some tightening measure, which I did not think they would do it right now. There's still a lot of uh, economic uncertainty. And you know now the next meeting is later in the year, in October. Maybe they could tie in policy then, but even but it's a little too early to make that call. So I do think that this, this is another trade that can work. Maybe I'll highlight one more trade on the rate side. Uh, yeah, sure, go for it. So, so uh, the trade that I just recommended recently is a Chile flattener. Uh, essentially, there's several curves. Uh, Chile is one of them that have steepened uh, quite a bit. 
And obviously the sell-off in US rates has been a factor in this steepening. Uh, Chile is one of them. The odd thing that happened was it steepened quite a bit this month. And this happened even as the long end of the US was coming down. So the US curve was actually flattening as the Chilean curve was steepening. And I, I believe the reason for this is Congress just approved third withdrawal from pensions. So in Chile, they, they, they already had, they've allowed two withdrawals from pension funds for locals uh, because of the pandemic. They're essentially giving one-off permissions for, for this as people are hurt by the pandemic. So to, to sort of ease out the, the pain, they allow people to, they've allowed people twice before in July and December to withdraw from their pensions. This is a third one. And because of this withdrawal, uh, essentially to me, it's a technical move that the, that the long end has sold off uh, because essentially as people withdraw their savings from the pension funds, the pension funds have to sell the bonds that they own. So to me, it's a technical move. It's a, it's a sharp move. And um, I expect it to reverse once it sort of gets fully priced in. And, and also since it's a third withdrawal, $34 billion roughly were withdrawn in the first two uh, similar mandates that came out. This one should be less than 10 billion. So compared to those, it should be smaller in size. So I would expect the curve, so sort of the long end to, to come in because sort of a technical sell-off. Uh, similarly, on the short end, uh, the growth outlook is very positive in Chile, especially with copper pricing hitting a 10-year high. The short end has started pricing in rate hikes. 100 basis points of rate hikes are priced in. Given the strength of the economy and given the pace of vaccinations, uh, which is the best in South America and one of the best in the world currently, I expect uh, more rate hikes to get priced in. So the curve should flatten with both legs working with 10 year coming down, two year moving up. I'll stop them, you know, if there are any other specific trades you want to ask about, please go ahead. Uh, no, we've actually got another question from the audience around, I think you might've touched this earlier on, but it's about how you're getting your specific target uh, for closing uh, with both currency pairs as well as rates. Uh, the, the, the questions around how you determine that uh, expectation for when to close out the trade. Sure. So what I do is, you know, once I have the pair, once I have the sizing, what I do is I, you know, the main, typically my target is if it were to completely mean revert. Remember, I picked these pairs that were dislocated. So because they're dislocated from their norm, um, I can estimate the PNL if they were to go back to their normal level. So the mean reversion, so for the bottom table has the mean reversion level with carry, without carry. So essentially with carry in three months, you know, on a size of half a million by 1 million, I would expect to make roughly $35,000. So that would be if it were to mean revert completely. If levels, so, so typically I would make that as my target and my stop loss would be, you know, on the other side, about half of that. So I'd use a two to one ratio to come up with the stop loss on the trade. And the level, uh, one that said, and then I also look at how the trade would behave if we were to go back to the levels that existed a month ago, six months ago, the best day that we experienced in four years and the worst day. 
All this is to give a sense of what the range of PNL to expect. So this is kind of how I start. Now, if I go to the table where I have actually closed trades. So if you look at the two trades that I've closed, the first one is I got stopped out. So this is a trade that I still think is a very good trade, but I hit my stop in this. So I was forced out of the trade. The second one, the Korean won versus Taiwan dollar. Um, essentially the factors that I was, that I used to put the trade on, one of them kind of shifted. So in the case, in this case, what happened was uh, the Taiwan dollar, uh, I was expecting it to be named currency manipulator because it met all the three conditions of US treasury. Uh, but what happened was Janet Yellen took a different approach this time around and did not name any country a currency manipulator. Essentially, the idea is that they want to engage with the three countries that did not meet the conditions rather than, rather than using a term like currency manipulator for them yet. So what that means is they will, because they will be discussing with them how to not, essentially the three conditions relate to obviously, obviously the, the current account balance, the, the bilateral trade balance, as well as interventions. So that's the part I think that they would focus on. And what that means is going forward, uh, the Taiwanese authorities would have a harder time intervening in the currency market. And as they do that, my expectation is at least in the short term, uh, the currency may appreciate more. So as a result, I closed the trade. The trade was quite a bit in the money, a lot more in the money. It was not close to my target, but close to let's say 20,000. So I was still holding on to it. But when that happened, the announcement came, my PNL got cut and I, I closed the trade. So even though it wasn't near my target, but you know the dynamics of the trade changed. As a result, I, I closed the trade. One other trade that I've closed, which is on uh, the rate side, which was uh, an asset swap trade between South African bond and a swap. Here, I, you know, the target was based again on mean reversion. It was a pretty aggressive target. And this trade moved pretty much in two weeks, very aggressively in the direction, in my direction. And because it moved in such a short period, pretty much more than almost like 60 to 70% of my target, it to me was good enough to close. So that's how I decided to close this one. So these are the three that are closed so far. Understood. That was very detailed. Thank you, Gotham. Um, I don't have any other questions at the moment. So I'd like to thank everyone for participating in today's webinar, especially Gotham for his detailed presentation and uh, addressing our questions. Um, we'll be sharing a recording of this webinar and slides with clients via the invite insight for the webinar on Smart Karma. Um, if you have any follow-on questions or bespoke project requests for Gotham, um, please reach out to your Smart Karma account manager. Um, thanks again for your participation today, and we look forward to having you on future Smart Karma webinars. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you liked this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you at the next one.